0: Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Lyon, Vice President of Compliance at In Contract. Joining me today is Cheryl Grizard, Regulatory Compliance Counsel at In Contract, and Katie Furl, Regulatory Compliance Expert. We're going to be delivering you some of the most important regulatory changes in the month of June, and believe it or not, this was one of the busiest months we have had all year. While it seemed like the regulators weren't really working the first two weeks, that quickly changed during the last two weeks of the month. And we're going to start off with a a, a huge announcement from the White House, and Cheryl has more information on that.
1: You're right, Stephanie. President Biden signed new legislation making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Now, Juneteenth, of course, commemorates the day that slaves in Texas found out that they were free some two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was enacted. Now, this new holiday is important for lenders in that it will affect the way a business date is calculated under the Truth in Lending Act and under Regulation Z. So if you're a lender, for example, involved in a residential mortgage transaction, you'll want to consider the timing requirements for things like loan estimates and closing disclosures And you'll wanna make sure that you are allowing consumers enough time to rescind certain transactions. So um, just keep those things in mind in light of the new federal holiday.
0: We're going to stay on a related topic for a little bit and discuss a landmark Supreme Court case. Take it away, Katie.
2: Yep, that's right. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you to all of you for tuning in today. It was a landmark ruling last week by the Supreme Court they determined that the governance of the Federal Housing Finance Authority is unconstitutional. If you recall, just last year, in a similar ruling, the CFPB was deemed the same. So what does this mean for us going forward? Well, it does does give the president authority to remove the director at will. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. The same day President Maiden removed Mark Calabria from his position, and appointed Sandra Thompson as the acting director of the FHFA. As a reminder, the FHFA and the CFPB were both created uh, in light of the 2008 financial housing crisis, and it, it has a lot of responsibilities as the overseer of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So with this new leadership, um, it's kind of breaking news, but just today she issued, uh, Ms. Thompson issued a policy statement on fair lending. And we're gonna talk a lot about fair lending today, but um, keep this on your radar. It could potentially change the direction of some rulings, for example, that are currently in progress. Uh, One that comes to mind to me is the qualified mortgage rule. As we know, it's kind of flip-flopped a little bit throughout several months here and it has a mandatory compliance date of October of 2022. However, under this new leadership, um, it could be amended, rescinded. Um, We really just don't know, but um, this is huge, and we will definitely um, keep an eye on this uh, as we track.
0: And that is not all on Fair Housing. The Department on Housing and Urban Affairs, or HUD, how we know it recently, has changed its tune from the prior administration when they issued a rule that was going to make it a little bit more difficult for plaintiffs to bring cases regarding disparate impact or disparate effect cases against our lenders, our financial institutions. So you may be wondering, I don't actually remember making any changes or thinking that fair lending laws had changed. And you are right. When we had this change back in 2020 under the prior administration, there was a court in Massachusetts that effectively froze this rule from even taking place until we we resolved it through the courts. And they didn't even have a chance to do that because then we had the new administration come in and they are very consumer friendly. They're very interested in fair housing issues and fair lending. And so under the new leadership of HUD, we're actually going to reverse course. We're not going to try to take that 2020 HUD rule that made it a lot more difficult for plaintiffs to say that you had a policy or procedure or a practice in place that even if it wasn't intentionally discriminatory, it was still creating a negative impact on a protected class or on minority borrowers or something along those lines. And so for you, your institution, like I mentioned, you probably didn't make any changes for the 2020 rule regardless, but I do want to emphasize, I do want to highlight for you the importance of fair lending right now. So you want to take a look at your policies. You want to take a look at your procedures and your practices, even those that you feel have nothing to do with discrimination and you want to make sure they're not having a disparate impact or effect on any type of minority borrowers. And how can you do that? Through your data. How can you do that? Through testing, audits, looking at your consumer complaints. Be mindful. This is the administration where you really need to be all hands-on protecting your lending practices to ensure you don't end up in any kind of lawsuit. And we're gonna now move on to a little bit about that data that we're mentioning and talk a little bit about HMDA mortgage information that just came out recently.
2: Yes, so it it seems like every day we're getting a report, right, um, from one of the agencies. And in June, the FFIC released its HMDA data report which is chock full of data from nearly 45 financial 4500 financial institutions who are required to report on Humda data. Um just today actually in contracts released a great blog on the five key takeaways that you can um, analyze from that report. But what I really want to talk about today is is how does this impact you and and what can you do as a financial institution to be sure that you're reviewing these reports as a tool and as as guidance as you move forward with your Humda processes. I think that we have all been um, put on high alert, like Stephanie was just saying, um, fair lending is is definitely um, a, a highlight for all of the agencies and they are using this data to essentially establish their examination plans. So I want to encourage you. Um, this is not something to view as a, a monster per se. This is definitely an opportunity. Use it to examine your own Humda processes, the controls that you have in place, the effectiveness of your training, your interpretation of Regulation C and Humda in general, how your systems are doing when it comes to uh, data ma- mapping and um, your Humda data Laura reporting. You know, I think that the key here is to, uh, like I said, not put these reports on a shelf, but take a look at them and um, really utilize it as a tool to establish your own to plan going forward. And on that note, um, there are so many tools out there for not only we as financial institutions to view our data, but to also give a glimpse to the public and examiners to it. And Cheryl's gonna tell us a little bit about what they've got going on there.
1: Absolutely, piggybacking on what Katie said in terms of tools, there is a new maps tool out and this new tool is very customizable. It allows you to take the HMDA data, customize it, run reports, um, you can filter by certain data subsets um, and this, this new tool contains the most recent data. So it has to use 2018 all the way up to 2019. So it's really cool you can use this, you can share it uh, with colleagues. You can also save the report um, on a PDF file as well to use it for later. And another important note uh, for Humda filers is Humda will be performing operations on July 6th, beginning July 6th. So just in case you're trying to make any filings, you may or may not um, have difficulties during that time period.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And Katie, we also have additional CFPB information on supervisory highlights. Is that right? That's right.
2: Just this week, the CFPB issued another report uh, that outlines its supervisory highlights for this summer. And, you know, what better way to know what not to do than to read the enforcement actions that have been imposed. Um, And this report has lots of examples and kind of moving right along with fair lending and humda reporting um and and just side note it's chock full of information regarding many topics but i did want to focus on the the humda issues that the cfpb perceived uh some institutions of having and essentially they they deemed that their compliance management systems were deficient um they didn't have the proper governance or oversight and more importantly, back to the data um the accuracy was was not sufficient um the the information that was flowing from their core system to the Humdelar was inaccurate. And so I just can't stress enough the integrity of your data. Um, it truly paints a picture as to how you're doing with fair lending compliance. And um, these examples could be utilized again as an opportunity for you to examine your own processes. Uh, one of the other important things to note, I think sometimes we forget that how big of a part marketing plays when it when it relates to fair lending compliance and There's several examples within this report as it relates to um, uh, redlining. And those all stem from marketing campaigns and the fact that they were only distributed to areas of non-minorities. Another interesting tidbit within that report related to um, photos of mortgage loan officers. Um, It stated that within all the advertisements, all the mortgage loan officers' pictures, their headshots, were of, of people, of, you know, white people. And so it's, it's little things like this that really need you to have everybody on board. Fair lending is not just compliance's responsibility. It is everybody's and everyone has to work together. And this report um, really highlights that. That's a great
0: segue, Katie, into all of the additional changes that are going on at the Bureau or the CFPB. So the Bureau has been really busy in the month of June, not just providing us with that report that Katie was mentioning, but they also issued a couple of FAQs. One set of FAQs focused on Regulation E, which is all about electronic bonds transfers and error resolution. And what they focused on on the error resolution front is to remind institutions that Regulation E is a consumer protection reg. They don't care if your customer is negligent. They don't want you to implement additional barriers that are going to make it difficult for your consumer to bring any kind of error resolution claim to your institution and for you to start investigating it. That means don't be requiring police reports. Don't be requiring your customer to work with a merchant. Understand what falls under fraud or unauthorized use and then investigate it accordingly and provide your provisional credit to your consumers. On the Regulation X or the Escrow Accounts FAQs, they focus all on shortages and surpluses, especially when we have shorter years or a shorter month. So they're explaining what you can do and what you should do. So that's what those FAQs are all about. The CFPB has also been busy in the rulemaking front. I wanna highlight Regulation X, which is again about mortgage servicing. And it should be no surprise to any of us that the Bureau just released their final rule on how financial institutions need to be supporting borrowers that are going through hardships and loan modifications. It is also going to affect your ability to take a specific loan into foreclosure. Um, It doesn't affect every single mortgage loan, just a couple or a few of them. So this is a very important rule that you need to pay attention right now. And the reason for that is they didn't give you a really long mandatory compliance deadline to start observing the changes to Regulation X and your foreclosure process. The mandatory deadline is August 31st of this year. So you got to get moving. You have to find that regulation. You have to get it to your mortgage servicing department If you have a third party that's supporting you through the foreclosure process, make sure that they understand these new responsibilities that you may have. Because remember, even if you're using a third party for debt collection, you're still ultimately responsible for compliance. So that's what we want to highlight here on the rulemaking. And finally, on the examination front, the CFPB has clawed back their power. And under the last administration, the CFPB thought we don't have the authority to examine for MLA compliance. That is the Military Lending Act. Under the new administration, we have a new tune. The CFPB feels like they do have the statutory authority to examine your financial institution for MLA compliance because they have a vested interest in protecting all consumers, including service members, their spouses, dependents, Another other covered borrowers under the Military Lending Act. So if you are a financial institution currently being examined by the CFPB, just know that that's gonna be reintroduced into your exams. If you're not currently being examined by the CFPB, but you're near that asset threshold, which is very exciting for you, uh, just keep in mind that that's definitely gonna carry over from your current exams to your next exams. So let's switch gear from our federal regulators and into cybersecurity and the state. We have a little bit of a shakeup in Texas. Let's go into that.
1: Absolutely, uh, Stephanie. One of the hottest topics um, in industry nowadays is data security. And Texas governor recently signed an amendment to its data security notification requirements, which will require any entity That has data affecting at least 250 residents that experience a security breach, they are required not only to report this information to the Attorney General, but they need to report the number of residents that were affected, whether they were notified via mail or some other form of communication. They have to report that information to the Attorney General, and the Attorney General will now put those companies on its website. and and it's available to the public, this has been deemed the wall of shame. So needless to say, there are very important, serious reputational risks associated with this. So you wanna make sure that you have all of your compliance and your security procedures in place to potentially avoid a, a major security breach. Shifting gears from Texas to Florida, Florida has released a new mini TCPA. Um, Basically, this will affect telemarketers and it will uh, select phone solicitations. We will provide you more details on this. Most importantly to consider is if your organization makes phone solicitations, even solicitations via text, you'll need to consider consumer... notice and those types of things, the times of day that you're making these phone calls and solicitations. But again, we will provide you more details as this information unfolds.
0: Thank you so much, Cheryl, on that information. And we're going to talk about something relating to security, and that is the latest changes to the interagency guidance from the FFIC. Yes,
2: Stephanie, um, just yesterday, the FFIC did issue a notification that they have updated their operations booklet. And uh, personally, it's a long time coming. It hasn't been updated since 2004. And just imagine all the changes that have occurred in the last 20 years as it relates to technology and, and the risks associated with that in our industry. They have renamed it the Architecture, Infrastructure, and Operations Booklet. Um, so at, where there's some, some positives here that it will, um, will reflect the changes in the industry over, you know, several, several years, um, we will be continue to track this and in comply, obviously, because it does deem, um, a statement that was associated with it, that, um, they will be as required by the treasury to institute, uh, some of their priorities as it relates to this. So, um keep it on your radar, um, keep, it, keep it handy as you evaluate the risk associated with technology at your institution. Great, let's switch gears to issues
0: affecting depository institutions. So we're gonna focus specifically on our banks and credit unions um, and things that are going on right now that affect everyone in that area is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, you may remember, controls regulation D, And during the pandemic, most of the teeth for Regulation D have been knocked out. The the requirement to restrict the number of saving account transactions into your checking accounts or transactional accounts has been completely removed. So your institution is free to allow unlimited transfers. You're allowed to continue to have that limit in place if you want to. So really that part of the regulation that made it important for us compliance folks has been kind of removed. Where we are seeing changes today and final rules regarding this regulation is on how we calculate interest on reserves. Last year, the Federal Reserve also removed the requirement to have a certain number of reserves in the Federal Reserve account. So now you can have unlimited reserves, you can have a minimum number of reserves, it's fine, so what they're trying to do is they're just trying to streamline the formula to calculate what kind of interest they're going to be paying on those reserves. So this information again, as a compliance officer, you probably don't need to, to to take it into yourself and figure out what that means. It's all the numbers, people. So send it over to your CFO, send it over to accounting, and let them know that that formula is going to be modified and streamlined a little bit better. We're gonna stay here on the Federal Reserve. Katie has a little bit more information on. The
1: FedNow, I believe, or if not, Cheryl. Yep, I'll take that one, Stephanie. Absolutely. So the Federal Reserve, um, like I said, they've been busy. Like Stephanie said, they've been busy. They have proposed making a comprehensive set of rules um, and adding that to Regulation J. Um, Basically, it's about the FedNow service. This is, again, an instant payment service that's going to allow financial institutions, individuals and in business to receive instant payments. So as it, the rules currently stand, there are no rules that govern how this service will work. So this proposal is establishing a set of guidelines that will be followed so that they will have uh, standards in place. Um, the, the The proposal also um, encourages um, use of or application of the UCC Article Four funds transfer, so they would like that to also be a guideline um, to help interpret um, the the running of the FedNow service.
0: Thank you, Cheryl. All right, we're going to move on to reporting requirements and what kind of reporting requirements could those possibly be? While well, Katie has all of that information,
2: well, that's that's just what this topic's all about. It's the the trade groups have said. We have too many reporting requirements. Um, the american Rescue plan act, if you if you read it, <laughs> there's a very small proposal within it that does impose some additional reporting requirements on financial institutions. and while the while the proposal is small, it could have a very big impact on our industry. And um what this means is that proposal is would require financial institutions to collect, information about their account holders that we previously have never had to collect as it relates to earnings and investments and business activities, um, for the purposes of, uh, to ensure that they're reporting properly. The trade associations have stated that, like I said, you know, we're, we're under so much scrutiny already with reporting requirements and then just all the changes that we're talking about today. And, and they're questioning, um, lawmakers reasoning for this. And, um, you know, the, the cost the cost benefit analysis of it. So there's been no formal guidance on this. It is just a proposal within that act, but um, it's definitely something that if, if it moves forward could have an impact on the industry as a whole. So we'll pay close attention to this one as well.
0: Great, thank you. Thank you, Katie. So we are going to move on to issues affecting national banks. So what is going on with national banks? Well, the OCC did a pretty rare move just recently this past month. They decided to submit an amicus brief, which simply means a legal document that is submitted to the court on behalf of a plaintiff or defendant. In this case, they are supporting Bank of America, a national bank, and they are supporting them because they feel like there is a an issue in New York right now in the New York Eastern District that could affect all national banks in the United States. And that issue is on the preemption of interest rate requirements for escrow accounts. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the background of this court case and how it could impact other national banks. So in a couple of, of years ago, we've seen a lot of litigation around whether or not banks and national banks specifically have to provide interest on their escrow accounts to their mortgage clients. And the OCC argues in their brief that no, they don't. The OCC rules and regulations explicitly tell national banks that they have the right to choose whether or not they're going to be issuing any type of interest rates. And they've completely removed that from the state. However, in the case of Bank of America in New York, the court did not agree with that argument. They felt like the state of New York was allowed to implement a rule and a regulation as well as laws that required any kind of financial institution to have to do the interest provisions for escrow accounts. So we're in the middle of this fight. It is now on appeal in the second district or the second circuit, which could affect more than just New York, because that case law can then be utilized across the United States as persuasive or required So it's a very, very important case right now. We're going to be watching it very closely. And depending on how the district or the circuit court decides to side, whether with Bank of America or with the plaintiff, we may see the requirement to start paying interest rates or interest on our escrow account if you're a national bank, even though the OCC doesn't agree with that. And that is not all on the OCC. We also saw just yesterday on June 30th, President Biden signed something to repeal the true lender rule. What is the true lender rule? Where it was a very short lived rule that was implemented in December of last year, which allowed national banks that are partnering with fintechs or other types of non-banking lenders to have a very easy way to determine if they were considered to be the true lender. And that caused investors and other people that purchase and sell loans to know exactly what kinds of laws were going to be carried with that specific loan. Because as I just mentioned, national banks have additional allowances under the national bank law or the national bank act that allows them to preempt something like the usury cap, which is the amount of interest you're allowed to charge on a loan. So it's very, very good to buy paper that is made by a national bank because then you're not subject to the state caps on how much interest you can get. Well, Congress, as well as, of course, President Biden, they felt like this true lender law allowed for a little bit of too much predatory lending for their specific taste, and they decided to completely remove it. Because it went through the Congressional Review Act and President Biden decided to sign that Well, the OCC is not going to be allowed to pass any type of of regulation that looks similar to the true lender law in the future, unless there's a lot of changes also associated with the statutory changes, which is just really complicated. Basically, we're not going to see another true lender rule anytime soon. That means that for the industry, for national banks that are partnering with these non-bank lenders, you're back. having to rely on state law and case-by-case determinations to figure out who your true lender actually is. And that's going to throw a wrench into being able to sell these loans to investors and being able to really utilize these loans to move them across from your, uh, your areas into, again, other people who are trying to buy them. So it's unfortunate, but there were really compelling arguments on both sides of why it should have been a rule in the first place. But ultimately, with the new administration we have here, they have the ability to make these reviews and to kill these rules. So nothing, unfortunately, nice on the OCC side, as I mentioned, with the preemption cases and the true lender being taken away. National banks are suffering a little bit when it comes to regulatory burden. Let's move on to maybe the FDIC, where we could see hopefully something good for our state (laughs) banks.
2: Yes, Stephanie, you are you are correct. There's good news here. The FDIC has proposed a rule to amend its real estate lending standards so that it is consistent with the community bank leverage ratio rule that was approved last year. This will reduce some reporting requirements for our community banking organizations. Those are those banks with less than $10 billion in consolidated assets and also meet some other qualifying criteria this rule will reduce some of the reporting requirements associated with any loans that exceed the supervisory loan to value limits. So this is a this is a plus here um, for you community banking organizations. Um, you do have an opportunity to comment on the FDIC's proposal through July the 26th. Awesome, thank you so much, Katie. And now we're going to
0: switch gears again and move into credit union issues starting with NCUA's newest rule, which is allowing federally insured credit unions, so again, those federal credit unions as well as state charter credit unions that have federal insurance, to start doing capitalized interest loan modifications. Capitalized interest is simply saying you're now allowed to move any unpaid interest into the principal loan balance which is really good because if you're trying to assist your borrowers right now during hardships, thanks to COVID, um, you're going to have additional ways to do so, not just from skip a pays to lowering the interest rate, but now you can remove some of that interest that has been accrued and in which your credit union members are doing payments to, you can put it to the interest into the principal so that they have additional time to pay it off. However, that does not mean you can capitalize your credit union fees. Really, this is about the interest. Another thing you need to note about this, if you want to take advantage of this new power granted to you by NCOA, you are going to have to have appropriate policies in place that have, that allow your institution to safely engage in this type of practice because it is something fairly new for, for federally insured credit unions. Make sure you truly understand the, the, the implications from accounting to liquidity to credit, all of those additional risks that you may see here if you're going to engage in this type of practice. So that is a rulemaking front. On the guidance front, we also have a couple of NCOA developments.
1: Absolutely, Stephanie. Well, on also applying to federally, federally insured credit unions, NCAA, NCUA issued a letter renewing its Two temporary modifications to its prompt corrective action regulation, and this is all a result of COVID nineteen. Now, the first modification will allow NCUA to issue an order waiving earning retention requirements for all adequately capitalized uh, credit unions. Um, now, this is if they are um, if they are su- suffering or not able to meet these requirements due to the pandemic. If it's due to other safety and soundness regions, this wouldn't apply. The second modification would allow um, in the credit unions that are undercapitalized to file simple net worth restoration plans. Um, again, it has to be as a result of the pandemic and due to increased share growth. So this was an important guidance um, and, um, from the NCUA to credit unions.
0: Great. And, and Katie,
2: are credit unions excited about this guidance? <laughs> well, they're, they're really just needing some additional resources. Um, you know, some of this guidance, you know, do they have the resources to calculate um, these requirements properly? And so they are seeking from the NCUA some additional tools to help them uh, meet these requirements in the, in the timeframes. So yeah, they're, they're needing a little bit of help. Got it. If-
0: when we, when we have new rules or new guidance, it sometimes leads to additional guidance that we need to actually properly implement any of these things. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for joining us today. We covered a lot of material. It is by no means all of the insanity that was the month of June. So please tune into your Comply. We have news, guidance, regulatory changes on the federal and state side. So if you need more help, you need more resources, more understanding of what's going on, Do rely on your software, and we'll see you next month when we cover everything that hopefully is less than today during our July NCAS presented to you in August. That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.